Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here as always. Uh, once again, the Greatest Games Podcast is a chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. And I'm not going to waste any more time because I want to get to our guest. We have one of the most special guests that we have ever had, episode number 34. We went, the, went over that pre-show chatting, explaining him to the significance of the 34th episode. But he just finished his third year at Charleston Southern University. He's had over 30 years in college basketball. Coach Rick Duckett, welcome to The Greatest Games. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks for having me. I'm not having you either, just Brian. Just, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. No, hey, Blas, I'm telling you, I'm so excited to see you, man. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. Well, again, we talk about this sometimes when we have on guys that we know. Uh, we had the chance of working with Coach Ducker for many years at the University of South Carolina, and those are always great memories and great times to talk about. And Coach Ducker was a fabulous mentor for uh, – not only the young men that he coached there, but the young men that uh, worked for him there. I, I truly believe that. No, you're kind. I appreciate you saying that. That was very nice of you. And, and Chris and Coach, I, this, is, this is the 100% truth here. And I know you know this, that I can make my mouth say anything, but well, I don't can. know if there is any coach we have referenced more on the greatest games than Coach Rick Duckett. Seriously. Wow. I, well, I'll tell you what, man. You guys, I don't know why I have not kept you on my Christmas card list, but I'm going to have to do something about that because you got <laughs> just laying it on pretty heavy right now. But, <laughs> but the, the reality is, though, you guys were easy to, to work with and you guys had good hearts and you always, you know, tried to do your very best and, and make us a better program. So, you know, that's easy as a, as a coach to deal with people who care and want to be successful in life. Yeah, that's, that is a very true statement. He's a wise man telling truths all the time, is Rick Duckett. Coach, why don't you take us through uh, your extensive resume as a basketball coach and, and how you have gotten to where you are now as an assistant coach at Charleston Southern? Well, I think it's, um, first of all, I guess when I started, I started as a GA at North Carolina while I was in graduate school. And then I left there and went to Harvard. And from Harvard, I ended up going to coach at my high school for a year. And, and then I ended up at uh, a place called Jacksonville University. And then from there, I went to Central Florida. From Central Florida, I went to the University of South Carolina for the first time under Bill Foster. Left there and went to Wichita State. And of course, Eddie Fogler was there. And after I left Wichita State, I ended up coaching at a Division II school called Fayetteville State. And from Fayetteville State, I took another Division II job at Winston-Salem State, which is where my hometown is. And I leave Winston-Salem State and go to South Carolina for the second time under Dave Odom. And then I leave there and I end up going to Grambling for a year and then I leave there and I go to uh, Tennessee State, then to Miami of Ohio, then Charleston Southern. So that's that's the road that I've and the journey I've taken to in coaching. 
So that took a while to cover all of that. Yeah. <laughs> I was just seeing if you could remember all the places. I tell you what, I did, I really did good. I'm telling you, and I got them in order. You know, it's like it's like a snowball effect. Once you get the first two or three right, yeah, then you roll. The next few roll off, man. But you got to get the first two right. You know, I think it's I think it's like who wants to be a millionaire? You mean you? <laughs> You, you got to get the first two right without any help. You just got to. <laughs> if I, if my math is right, that's 15 stops counting your GA stint at UNC. So that is uh, the definition of extensive. And uh, so the first question I have for you, Coach, is that uh, all your stops as a young man now um, to where you are now at Charleston Southern, what are some of the beliefs that you had early on maybe as a coach that you look back now that just say, wow, that's I was completely off or just some, just some changed beliefs throughout your journey. Well, I, I think one of the things is that you think, and it's probably parallels life is that you think because you're, you believe in loyalty, for example, and you think loyalty is the key, but that's, that can be a one way street. So some of the things that you start to find out, in, in sports is that just because you have a belief system in loyalty or respect or commitment, that doesn't necessarily mean that the people around you will have that same uh, type of value system. So, you know, on the journey, you meet all kinds of people and you meet people who care, you meet people who don't care, you, pe you meet people who are in it for just the money. And you know, it's just it's just that nature of business. It's not just athletic, but I think it's just a, a rule of business and rule of people. You meet all types of people, and you sort of think, you know, at the beginning that all of them are going to be really good people and really care about people, and and you find out on that journey that no, that's not what the way everyone thinks. So you know, you you adjust and you understand. And the things you have to know, you know, is, is that you learn things as you go. It's like anything, like you can't really prepare, for example, to be a head coach until you're one. You think being an assistant prepares you, but it doesn't, it, when you change seats, it's, it's a different job. So you're gonna learn on the job. You're gonna have the tools to, be, to learn and to grow in the position, obviously, but you don't nearly know what the coach that was above you as the head coach, the decisions that were made and things that were happening that you didn't know about. You know, the one thing you learned too, uh, Brian and the uh, Blas, is that people at the top have information that you don't have. And so when decisions are being made, you know, the first reaction when something comes down and it reflects other people like change, for example, the first thing that happens in everybody's mind is that's unfair. That's not right. Why do they do that? But they're looking at it from their level, but at the top level, there's more information and they're making decisions on information that no one else has. Wow. That is very true. That's very true in all walks of life. That information thing. I like that one. Uh, Coach, you went through your extensive resume, and the question I want to ask you is, 
talk about some of the mentors you've had along the way. Uh, we could go through them, obviously, Coach Smith and, and the people at North Carolina. And then you said you worked for Bill Foster, who was a longtime Division One head coach. When you were at Winston-Salem, I believe Coach Gaines, Clarence Big House Gaines, was still around the university. And, you know, just talk about these mentors you've had and, and what they've meant to you and how they've helped you learn these lessons. Well, you know what? One of, the, one of the great things about working in North Carolina and Coach Smith is that, first of all, just being there listening to him every day, there was so much knowledge. You know, the thing that I probably, looking back, should have done, I should have had a notebook like I do now where I write notes and write down everything he said because what he, he talked about it each day is he, he really built culture. And back then, People called it a system, you know, they said, and he would always think of a system as something rigid and, and not able to, to change and to grow. But in reality, if you look at it in today's vernacular, what you would find is that at North Carolina, he built a culture and people believed in the way he believed. And he recruited people that was, would do it not only his way, but also believed that that way was the best way and gave people the best opportunity to be successful individually, and most importantly, uh, the best opportunity for them to be successful, you know, as a team. So, you know, everything was built around team, and no one was bigger than the, than the guy at the end of the bench, and the, the first guy who started was just, he was able to make everybody feel like they had a fair chance and they were being treated fairly. And so, you know, when you have that kind of culture developing, people believe in you, then you're going to be successful. So, you know, he was he was my foundation of learning how to teach man-to-man defense, the principles and concepts of man defense, and and teaching that on a daily basis and the drills is just sort of my, the hallmark of, of my coaching. And then when you, you leave there and, you know, you go to Harvard and then you have a, a place where there are no scholarships and you were having to work with young men, that was a great experience because I tell you what, I, I, those guys at Harvard that were not on scholarships in many cases had a greater commitment. There's a lot of guys that I've coached on scholarship. So mm -hmm. the reality is, you know, you learn right pretty quick that just having a scholarship by definition doesn't mean you're going to work hard and be successful as a player. And so that experience was really good. I, I really, I really – had a lot of respect for those guys because they were smart, they were engaging, and they really, really cared about basketball. I was, I was, I'm telling you, I was really impressed. And then I believe Penn and Princeton, Pete Carell was there, Bob Weinauer was at Penn. You're talking about good coaches and good players, man. I am telling you what, they were really good. And you know, Penn back in the 70s now, they were winning NCAA games. And then, of course, Princeton was causing fits for people back then. So that was an experience that was really good. You know, then I, the thing, I went to uh, South Carolina for the first time. And then when I was at South Carolina, Bill Foster was there. What the thing that I remember most about Coach, it was that he was engaged in a lot of ways. He had that dry sense of humor, the kind of humor that I sort of like. It's that, you know, you, you listen to Cheers or you listen to Seinfeld or something, you got to, pay attention to the humor. But uh, he was the guy that I think, I want to say once every two weeks, maybe it was once every three weeks, 
I would find a book on my desk for me to read. And he was the guy that engaged me about reading. And it was, I'm talking about the stuff he put on was not always a basketball book. So that was really exciting in the sense that, okay, he wants me to read this, so I'll read it. And so now I still have that desire to sit at my desk from time to time and just read something that, that interests me. So he was that kind of guy, very smart, very cerebral, um, a very detailed guy, very kind and, and very easy to talk to, and just a, just a profoundly good person. And then, of course, Eddie, we, we both know Eddie, and he – he obviously not only was a good basketball coach, he, he certainly was a guy that was uh, instrumental in teaching. You know, he was obviously different than Coach Smith, even though the philosophy and the things we did at Wichita was consistent with North Carolina, but his style and his approach was different. But he could teach just as well, and he was a detailed guy and a fundamental guy. So you learn, you know, you, again, you learn how to run a program and you learn what's important. Uh, to being successful. And then after you leave there, you go and you end up coaching your own team. And that was a great experience because, you know, when you're at Division II level, like for Winston Central State, you know, you've got a truly, truly a great icon in Big House Games. And, you know, he would come to practice and sit and watch and I would talk and try and engage, engage him, and he really wouldn't give, like, suggestions. He would talk about things like, uh, Coach, you really got their attention, they're listening. And he would talk about those kind of uh, ancillary kinds of things that make for success. He didn't get caught up watching practice, worrying about the X and the O, where, where this guy was or where this guy wasn't. He would, he would talk about – they were engaged. You had their attention. It looks like you've got a good squad. It looks like they're coming together. Those kinds of things. And my favorite thing to do with Big House, and and he was great and generous, is like Charlie McClendon's one of the, the, the great coach from North Carolina Central mm-hmm. came in. If you do the history lesson there with, with him and Coach Gaines, I mean, he won over a thousand games. I don't think many, you know, you'd have to do some homework to know that, but I mean, this guy and McClendon and Martin at Tennessee State, those guys were like giants in coaching. And, and a lot of people don't realize their contributions because if you, if you do the history of the CIAA, for example, you would see the names of those guys like McClendon and, and, and uh, Big House and how many games they won and how successful they were. And they were just really, really great. And I just listened to the stories. I mean, most of the time when, when Coach came in McClendon or something it would, and, and I saw and talked to him, we, we, it was just shooting the breeze. And he was just telling stories back in the day when he was at North Carolina Central. And they would sneak in and scrimmage Duke and nobody was be, would be in the gym. So, you know, those kind of stories, a lot of people don't have an understanding of what went on in the South back then during segregation because obviously you know they were successful but that was a time when when the black colleges had really a lot of the the best athletes because they couldn't go to the majority schools Mm -hmm. and so big house games was was really really a guy that was was really nice to me my favorite thing i remember about big house games is that he would always take me to lunch and he had a barbecue place if you're from north carolina you 
you have this debate about Lexington barbecue or <laughs> Eastern North Carolina barbecue. And depends on where you're from is what you like. I like it all. But anyway, you know, but uh, the, the point is that he would, we would go and ride down there and eat barbecue and talk. And, and he, he just talked about your family and just, I'm telling you, you could not imagine. I was so happy when we won a championship there because the look on his face, man, it was priceless. You, you know, you, you really thought that you had done something special for him because not only did the school mean a lot to him, obviously, I think he really cared about the success of the program and as part of his legacy. And he, he really, really was just a tremendous man. Tremendous man. And so, you know, then you, you leave there and you end up going to, to um, a place called South Carolina again. How about that? Now, the first time they're in the old Metro Conference, <laughs> now, nobody would know that unless they really were, were history scholars. Of, of <laughs> but we, it was the Metro Conference back then, which basically sort of, you know, a lot of ways is Conference USA in, today. But uh, a lot of those same teams. But the point is, as we move forward uh, to the present, you know, then Coach Odom was there. And Coach Odom allows you the opportunity to do a lot of things. You know, I think as a coach, and certainly when you've been around and been a head coach, I think you, you have a desire to be able to be involved in a lot of things and have aspects that you know that you can have ownership in. So working at South Carolina with Dave really gave you an opportunity to uh, do a lot of things and be a part of the big picture. You know, a lot of times as assistants, you are part of the details, which obviously are very, very important. Certainly I wouldn't uh, suggest that they're not, but a lot of times, you know, you are not always part of the big picture of what happens in the end. I almost would place it in the mind of, you are the guy going to the grocery store, getting the groceries, but somebody else is cooking the meal. <laughs> and with, with Dave, you could get the groceries and he let you cook. So that's the analogy that I find most the way to describe that experience. And, and then, of course, going to Tennessee State, working with one of my former players, John Cooper, was absolutely you know fabulous. And, and I also worked for him in Miami, Ohio. And we've been friends after coaching. We we stayed together because he was an assistant for me at Fayetteville State. So, you know, we've we've since his time as an 18 year old to the present. You know, we we're like one. I mean, we're just family. But that's part of the journey. And then, of course, I leave there, and then I come, and I've known Barkley for gosh almighty, uh, I would say, 20 years at least. So, you know, we've you know we've been uh, friends for a while. So. That experience has been good, and he, and he lets you do things, and he gives you ownership in, in areas, and so this is this has been a good working environment for me. And at this point, you know, I'm just a relationship guy anyway, and I want to be around good people and people who care, and that's worked out pretty nice. Coach, I want to key in on that, the relationships and getting to work around you at USC to see the relationships that you build with anybody in the building, um, you know, just walking in and, and obviously the players, and that's kind of where I want to key in on that. But the question really is, is more so you, you mentioned that 
word success a lot in that answer and successful programs and success everywhere you've been. But how do you define success for those guys, whether you're in a, a head job or assistant job, but in, in your players specifically, how do you define success for those kids that you get to work with? Well, you know, what, what I think is when, when, a, when a young person realizes, first of all, the ability that, and the gifts that they have, and they are willing to sacrifice and work hard to bring those gifts to the forefront and, and make themselves successful by hard work, enthusiasm, and commitment, then I think that's success. And I think sometimes people forget about the journey of success because they're, they're focused on the destination. And, and a lot of times the success really is in the journey and the, desti and the destination is just and the, the aftermath of that success. So when I look at players that I've coached, I don't, everybody's not going to be a professional athlete. I already know that going in. So my point, my thing is I want to learn their story. What is their story? What is their life experience been like? What's made them sad? What's made them happy? What tragedies have they had to overcome to really learn their story and ask them questions that deal with the very heart of their experience and deals with the very heart of their upbringing and how did they arrive here. And then once we get to that level of understanding, then what we started to look at is how does the person deal with people, first of all, in their relationships on and off campus? How do they perform in the classroom? Because I think that tells you something about success then how well do they prepare and work at their craft? You know, you know, basketball is, you know, people love to watch LeBron and they love Jordan and they love KD and all those guys. And those guys are terrific, no question about that. But as good as they are, the, the dirty little secret is they work hard every day. They're fully committed. They always give you their very best. And you're not going to have, they're not going to take a day off. And so, Success for them is looks different, you know, for the guy that's uh, in the NBA and he's the 11th or 12th guy and he's just trying to fulfill a role. But his work ethic, he should never be outworked. I mean, he, one thing we all have is 24 hours in a day. That sounds kind of um, basic, but, at the, but at the reality of that is you all have the same amount of time. So now the question is, what are you going to do with your time? You can't get it back. You can't, you don't get a do-over. You can't make up for it. I always love the guy who does not work hard in the summertime, does not do anything extra after practice. Then all of a sudden, after they finish their fourth year and their senior year in college, they want to work out. As if somehow you're going to make up for the four years you did nothing. It, it just boggles the senses that some people would define that as now I'm going to be successful at the next level. And, and I don't understand how to expect to get there. No more than I can understand how you can pass an exam and you didn't do any work all the semester. 
Now, that, to me, it can happen. You may be a genius and you can do it in one night. But typically, most people who don't do well during the semester don't do well on the final. So I always, I always think about success as people having the ability to reach their full potential based on the gifts that they've been given. And whatever those gifts are and, and whoever the person is, if they're committed and they work hard and realize that to be successful, you have to be able to overcome adversity. And if you're not strong enough to realize that life's going to give you some hard knocks and you're going to get knocked around and you're going to have to get up, then you know you have a you have a real problem with ultimately reaching your full potential. And I always tell young people if you if you get knocked down, land on your back because if you can look up, you can get up. And so the most important thing is to be able to overcome adversity, understand that you have a gift, and you have to really, really perfect the gift. And that's all Jordan and LeBron and KD did. They had a tremendous amount of talent, but I bet you if they were sitting here right now, we had LeBron or we had KD, you pick the guy and say, tell me about a guy you grew up with that you thought was really, really a good basketball player. And you know that he's good enough to be in the NBA, but he didn't put in the work and he wouldn't apply himself. And I bet you each one of them could think of a guy like that who, who had really a gift, but did nothing with the gift. So, I, I say to my, I say to young people, hey, you you have got to perfect the gift, and when you realize what the gift is, when you work hard, you you're going to be able to supersede what you thought was possible, because you already have a gift. Now you're perfecting it, and I believe when that God, when He realizes that you're going to cherish the gift and you're going to work and perfect the gift. I think he accelerates your, pro your, your process to the final mark, which is being successful and being the best person you can be. That, really, that last part's really interesting. There was so much. I don't, I don't know if I have enough time to comment on everything you said, Coach. Okay. Uh, but I do, want, I, I do want to let our listeners know, back when you were talking about Coach McClendon, Coach Gaines, and there was a documentary that ESPN did about 10, 12 years ago called Black Magic. And it talks yeah. about those games that were played between Coach McClendon's teams and the Duke teams back in the day in Durham. Mm -hmm. And it's a great documentary. It's one of those, if you're a basketball person, it is a documentary you do want to watch. But I want to sit around one day with you and have okay. you tell me the Coach Gaines and Coach McClendon stories. That's what I okay. want. I want to okay. do that. <laughs> 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 you know, yeah, you know what? You know what's funny? You know what's really, really interesting too, though, guys, is that when I was at Wichita, I got a chance. Two things that I'll never forget: the the highlights of my coaching career. The first was sitting and having lunch with Red Arback. Now that shows you how old I am, obviously. <laughs> but I had a chance, and I'm telling you right now, when you're my age. Sitting with Red Arback, you don't talk, you listen. And Red Arback, once he starts telling the stories and how he did things, and he, he goes into his Laker games, and everybody was talking about showtime and the fast break. And he says, Well, my theory was just the opposite. Everybody was getting back. He said, I just start sending more people to the glass that they had to account for. And if they didn't account, we were going to kill them on the boards. And 
and beat them anyway. So he, he was the guy that really had good stories. And then the second thing that really mattered to me, and, and, and I shouldn't, and not only matter, but I thought was great, is I had a chance to visit with uh, Pistol Pete Maravich. Uh, we spent a half a day together talking about his experience and how much he spent dribbling the ball and how much time he dribbled in the house or he was dribbling to school, but there was always a ball in his hand regardless of where he went. And that was in October. And then uh, two months later, he died. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I just sat with one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And two months later, he was dead. And it was so, so, I mean, it was just shocking because when I was talking with him, he didn't, he looked well. I mean, he looked well. He looked in good health. And you just, you know, it goes to show you how fragile life is because obviously, you know, he died, but that was a really good experience, man. Those two guys are just, you're talking about good stories and good people. That was fun. I mean, he doesn't know me from Adam's house cat and he's just rattling around, man. He's just talking to me like we were just like, you know, next door neighbors. It was great. He was very engaging. Really a lot of respect for him. The, the first person I ever heard say he doesn't know me from Adam's house cat was Matt Cradell, by the way. That was really I ever heard use that. That is a decidedly Southern expression. Yes. But coach, I do have, I, I actually, this is the most important question. Brian's not okay. even going to know why I'm going completely off. Uh, off the radar. Yeah. Are we going to pay Dak Prescott or what? I mean, I know you're a cowboy guy. Like what can, what, are we going to figure this situation out with Dak? I, I think, that, I think, again, <laughs> I think, I really think he's auditioning, to be honest with you. Nobody wants to be honest and say that at, in Dallas. But I really think they're auditioning the guy. You know, you know, you can put those tags and all you want on people, but <laughs> if if you if you if he's really your guy, then he you you would sign him to a long term contract at this point. You know, that's just the facts. And, and you know, if they don't think he's good enough, he needs to keep proving himself. Then hey, they they they'll have to figure that out. But you remember now, one man's junk is another man's treasure. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, I knew that would throw you one for a little loop, but I had to get that in there. Yeah, that, a little football me, talk. The, That's okay. The biggest That's cowboy fan I've met in my life. Okay. <laughs> I am. I am. Well, I tell you what, let's go ahead and get to coach the greatest game. Uh, again, the name of the podcast, the greatest game. So I'd love to get as much background information about this game, or if you have a couple of games, that's totally cool as well. Uh, but why these <laughs> games or this game is so special to you. Oh gosh. Are you saying he's been around too long that he has too many games, Brian? I'm not, saying, I'm not saying anything oh. of the like. <laughs> a lot of games in my head, but I'm, I'm going to tell you the first one. And, and this is when I was at Winston-Salem State. And uh, we had a rivalry game. No, no, oh, no. The irony of this is we're playing Winston-Salem State, but I was the head coach at Fayetteville State at the time. And so I'm at Fayetteville State. And this is a late arriving crowd now. So this is not like <laughs> the COVID where you got, you know, 25% attendance. I mean, these people, <laughs> they're just not there yet. But, um, <laughs> So we're playing uh, Winston-Salem State, and we're really, we're really good. I mean, we got a really good team, and they got a really good team. 
and they've got a couple transfers that have come in from a and and, boy, they were tough. So we start out, and I'm telling you right now, it was back and forth. Defense was optional. And we were back and forth. I'm telling you, at halftime, the game was in the 40s. And, I mean, nobody could stop either one. And, and at the end of regulation, the, the score was like 92 to 92. And so, I mean, this is a high-scoring game. It's, we go to overtime. We're exhausted. They're exhausted. We're using our bench. They're using their bench, of course. And they got a big stud down there. This guy is 6'6". He reminds you of really Barkley. He's like a 6'6", but he's 260, 265 with uh, socks on. So <laughs> he, he is a dude. You know what I'm saying? He's down there, and I keep telling guys that we're going to front him. And, you know, you can't front a guy that – that won't let you get around him. So this guy, he's dialing us up. I mean, he is he is scoring at will. And and now I've got a guard for, that's having the night of his night. He ends up having 37 that night. And he's going off. And it really turns out to be a basically a two-man show. Their big guy inside versus our guard who can get to the rack or make the shot. And he was just feeling it. And then, of course, now the game goes to the second overtime. And so now I'm trying to figure out how can we just get this guy fouled out? So we started just throwing the ball inside, making him defend now. Even though the guard was having a big night, we thought we could get some touches inside and make him defend and then throw out. Then we would be in a position now maybe to get him out of the game because, quite frankly, I didn't know how we could win it without him coming out because we just really didn't have an answer. I mean, we had, we had a couple guys down there, but you know, they could have very easily been in the band because they, they had no answer <laughs> for this guy here now. And uh, so young was down there dialing us up. And so then we uh, come back and in the second overtime, and this, I mean, that's a barn burn. I mean, it's a barn. Now, by now the place is packed. We have violated the fire code, and <laughs> now security is just blending in with the crowd. So now <laughs> if it happens, then you got to call for outside backup because there's nothing you're going to do inside there now. And so they're seeing really the best part of the game. And now we go to a third overtime, and we finally get the big kid filed out. When he files out, then we ended up, you know, at the end, winning the game, the guy that had the big night ended up uh, making some free throws at the end to ice it. But I'm telling you, three overtimes, Fayetteville versus Winston-Salem State, man, that was absolutely unbelievable basketball. Two really good teams that just refused to lose. I mean, it was just a matter of who had the ball last because really we were all just – scoring at will and then you know when you're in the hundreds even though you go to triple overtime still when you're playing the hundreds in college basketball that's a lot of points that's really a lot of points so that sticks out as the the greatest game but i've been a part of a lot of really good games whether it was at south carolina or certainly at wichita you know i thought winning the uh 
Missouri Valley Championship against Tulsa when I was back at uh, Wichita State. I thought that was a great game. They were really, really good. Tulsa was back then. J.D. Barnett was the coach. He was, he was the guy that back then they call it ball line defense, but now we call it the pack line. But it's the same principles of mm-hmm. defense. And they had a really good team, and we obviously had a good team as well. And that game was back and forth and nail-biter all the way to the end. So, you know, there are a lot of great games if you sit back and after you finish coaching and reflect on some of them. I kept a lot of those games, and you won't believe it, Blas, I have a lot of those games actually on VHS, so I need to actually convert that. Yeah, you need to go to the Smithsonian to get a to get a VHS player to convert that. I think I know. <laughs> so I got to get that stuff, you know, translated over because those games really will be worth seeing, you know, years from now. So the the game when you were at Fayetteville was the game at Winston Salem or at Fayetteville? It was at Fayetteville. Okay, so you had them. On it your- was it, yeah, we had them on the home court, man. But it didn't matter because you know what happens in basketball is it just comes down to matchups. You know, you think as a coach. You're going to have this – you're going to diagram this play. But at the reality is, you know, if you got good players, they're going to make the right play. And so you have to give them freedom. And when I had a guard making, you know, making shots and into a, a, a real groove, I just let the guy go. And he just made the right play. He either scored or dropped it off. And, you know, that's basketball. Made up, He made other people better. And then defensively, you know, you, you – you want to double team in the post and do those things, which you try to do. But, you know, those guys, uh, when they're really good, they're, they're hard to, to prevent from scoring other than double teaming. And at the time, you were at Fayetteville. You hadn't yet been at Winston-Salem. But that's right. I, I would assume Winston-Salem beating them was definitely a notch, a notch on your belt. I mean, they're, they're one of the flagship programs of that, of that conference. Right. And it became a bigger rivalry. Think about it. Now I go to Winston-Salem State, and then I go back to Winston-Salem State as the head coach and play at Fayetteville. So you can imagine that they came early. They, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They came early when I came, I came back. That, that was the crowd that said crucify them, you know? They, they just, uh, you know, they wanted to be there for the crucifixion. But at the end of the day, uh, when we went back there, it was a bigger game. Now – it wasn't as big as the triple overtime, but it was a good game. And we ended up winning that game my first year back at Fayetteville. And so, you know, that was a big deal. And I really, really surprised them because even though I was at Winston, I wore my blue blazer of their school colors. So I got a little, I got, I, I taunted them a little bit. I must admit. So yeah, when you were at Fayetteville, they couldn't find the directions to the arena, but when you got Winston Salem, they all of a sudden, they, they figured out how to get there on time. Right. But, hey, I'm telling you right now, man. It, everybody likes a, a a good a good crucifixion, man. <laughs> Coach, you, you talk about defensively a, a little bit there. Uh, one of the things that I love watching you. Uh, coach at South Carolina was was changing defenses, and I loved your philosophy about throwing them a curveball here and there. And uh, so, was that philosophy in place by by this game? We're talking about doubling the post there a little bit, but uh, um, where where did you really develop that philosophy of? Uh, Again, I, you have to go. You know what? You go all the way back to to 1975, 
something. Now, obviously, you boys <laughs> can't go back that far. But at the end of the day, in 1975, when I was at North Carolina, then, of course, that was the philosophy of Dean Smith. That's what, that's what the, the, the culture of basketball meant. He felt that you needed to change defenses to keep the offense off balance. And so that, that philosophy and that approach to basketball permeated through my philosophy. And that was just one of the things that, that stuck with me. Because, it, you know, what happened is I love baseball. And it was, a, it was an analogy in my mind to a, a really good picture, a picture. Because good pitchers have more than one pitch. Because if the, if the curveball isn't working or the slider's not working and that's all you have, man, you know, you, you may have a long night. <laughs> but if you got a good, you know, good pitch and then you've got another strikeout pitch, then, you know, you can make a living. And then if you got a third pitch, then, you know, you're, you know, you can end up in the Hall of Fame. But the, the point to me was in basketball, Coach Smith says, you, you want to change because you want the offense to do something that they haven't practiced. And so by you doing the multiple defenses, you're taking them out of what they naturally want to do, and you're making them do something different. Mm-hmm. And he felt that it gave you an advantage defensively when they're doing things they have not worked on or practiced as much as if you just play one defense and all they had to do is master a game plan, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. master game plan on that. So we, that we, was a big deal. Yeah, we changed defenses this year, but it turns out the other teams practice making layups all the time. They were <laughs> – they were terrific. Well, well yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You, the key, though, is to change the defense and not give up layup. <laughs> we we tried. They told you that. It turned out they practiced layups. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you decided to go to the zone, I guess. <laughs> As you famously said, the other team has guys on scholarship, too, now. They, right. Know, yes, right. They, they right. get to practice as well. <laughs> I, they sure do. A lot of times we forget that, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes their guy's just better than your guy. Yes, that's it. <laughs> it's oh, really man. bad when all five of them are better than your well, five. Well, then you got a problem. Then you got, got a real problem. You got a problem on your hands. Think back about those times, Coach, with you in the film room. And I think I'm going to go back to one of your answers uh, earlier in the show about just building relationships with kids and uh, getting them to see the gifts that they have inside of them and asking them asking them real questions. That was, again, that's one of the things I really respected about you, about how you connected with guys. But in the film room, just absolute deadpan, uh, almost, I don't know if it's sarcastic, but just, uh, you know, if you're just, you know, just go ahead and let him drive to the lane and go ahead and lay it in. Don't nobody rotate over. I just always love just your your delivery in there. And, and guys just loved it. I mean, just, just yeah. ate it up. But, Brian, you think about it this way. Guys don't want to be there in the first place because, they, you know what I'm saying, the film doesn't lie. So nobody wants to be called out in front of their peer. Right. And so what I've decided over the years, I said, well, you know, you can get your point across and you don't have to make this a root canal. <laughs> and so I said, you know, let's let's we can bring some humor in this and we can talk about it and relax and understand that 
this is not the right way to do it. But it doesn't have to be so rigid that, you know, people are sitting in fear. And, you know, I just think in terms of film time, I think you ought to just really, really relax, you know, let the guy know that you're not happy with what he did, but at the same time, find the humor in what, in what he was doing. And so film time is fun time. I love to get in there and <laughs> get on guys about their behavior and their, or lack of it or their lack of commitment, whatever it might be, because you may see anything on film. And uh, most guys, you know, before the film, you know, promised you that they rotated and promised you <laughs> that uh, it wasn't their man who drove by. <laughs> and then I like to just stop and say, well, if that wasn't you, you have a twin in the game. And so you know, <laughs> we have to fix that. And, uh, the ability for guys to just say, okay, you're right, coach. I blew that. I screwed that up. Let's move on as opposed to and take ownership. Yeah. And that's what you hope happens. Yeah. I remember a period of time when it was one season, for whatever reason, every time someone made a mistake in practice when we were scrimmaging or something, Coach Odom would turn and he would point at me with the camera to the kids. He would, like, turn and be like, we'll, we'll figure it out, you know. <laughs> that's right. No, that's right. It's, and the film is great, man. That, that way you don't have to get in this big debate. <laughs> this big debate. You know, I learned that at North Carolina with Coach Mill. You know, players didn't talk back in practice. Back then, back in the seventies, the coach made a point, and and that was it. He said, "We don't have time for everybody to respond every time I say something." So the practice and the culture in North Carolina at the time was, if you wanted to say something, you just wait till the end of practice. Come up to him; he would talk to you about anything that went on in practice because he had a he had an unbelievable memory, and so he would talk to players after practice because he didn't want to stop teaching. You know, he told me, you know that you should never have a drill more than 10 minutes. He says, because when you go past 10 minutes, you lose guys. They can't focus that long. And if he thought that back in the 70s, <laughs> the millennials, I don't know how long they can focus. You should never drill longer than 10 seconds then. No. I know, right? I know. Well, Coach, this is going to be a tough one. We like to okay. finish on a fun question here. Fun question. I can't wait. If, if I asked, <laughs> if I asked someone who played for you back at Wichita, if I asked Coach Cooper when he okay. played for you back at Wichita, okay. and I asked a kid who played for you this year at Charleston Southern, okay, what is the one thing they would say that Coach Duckett says all the time for over and now? I have about fifty of them that you say. Yeah, all the time, fifty. <laughs> uh, what is something you think that you wind up repeating over and over that that kids think is like what Coach Duckett always says? Uh, I, I probably, they probably would say you can make your mouth say anything that might be right up there. And, uh, I tell guys a lot, there's always enough time. There's never enough time to do it right, but always enough time to do it over. And I just believe that. And guys just sort of focus on that. So I, you know, I think he would probably say that. I'm a lot, I was a lot tougher on him than I am on the new group, too. You know, they <laughs> love to think that they had it bad and this group had it easier. I don't know why guys think that that their time in college was a lot tougher than the new <laughs> But they all believe that. They really – I'm amazed that <laughs> many guys believe that. That's great. Coach, I, I guess I have one – yeah, I'm gonna have one final question after Blaz's 
last okay. question. When are, when is your book coming out? Is I, I, I would, I would love to see a, a Rick Duckett basketball journey book or wisdom of Rick Duckett book come out. When, would you, when, when is that coming out? Coach? Well, tell me this. If only you, if only you had it, I don't know if that's book worthy. I don't think I'm making a lot of money. <laughs> I don't know if you write a book for two people. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, most people are looking for some controversy or something, you know, that's going to be earth shadowing or certainly uh, they feel like it's a life changing uh, story. But mm -hmm. I write a book and they would, you know, maybe they would use it in the bathroom. But other than that, <laughs> I don't see it being used very often well how about this you just send me a long email of everything that you've learned along the way and everything like that and then i'll just keep it and, okay. and we'll just go from there how about that i'd be glad to do that that's the that's really the easy part that's the, that's the easy part because at the end of the day you know guys like you who were part of the journey who you know quite frankly i just think the world of and and you what you're doing and how much you care about people and you know you guys talk about me but you know you guys really care about people and, and i think about relationships you guys had in college and i think about the relationships that you were able to forge not only with players but with coaches and classmates and and even to this day you know i i've never heard a bad word about either one of you so and my wife thinks the world of blahs and i'm telling you right now talking about misinformed but you know, she, <laughs> she 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 loved blahs, and I said, "Well, gosh Almighty, what happened?" I didn't know if he's if, if he just got her on the Christmas list or something or what. But she thinks the world, and she says she don't remember Brian. I said, "Well, if you think blahs is good, Brian's much nicer." <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> it's it's just a. Uh... The connections that we made along the way, and I, I love your journey. Talking back, back to Coach Smith and North Carolina Tree, and Coach Fogler and Coop playing for you, and and to be a part of it for for me, it was just a, a a real pleasure, and for all of us to still be able to live vicariously through you guys and see all the good things y'all are doing down at, at Charleston Southern. It's a uh, it's a it's a it's really really cool, and I just couldn't I couldn't be more thankful to be around, have been around guys like you, and um, just. Just and and honestly, Coach, just can't can't thank you enough for coming on this show. It's, oh, it's man. been really special. You guys are the best. Well, when you got when I saw that email, I was I was not only honored, I couldn't wait to be a part of it because you guys are terrific. I just I didn't know you guys were even into podcasts and things like that. So that's that's great. I, if I could be of any service to you guys, I always will be available. Great, thank you. Well, we appreciate that. We might. We'll, we'll tease a little bit here, Blas. We're, we're working on a little something, Coach, about uh, one of those a uh, couple of special moments we had at USC. So we might have to reach out to you here in a couple of weeks if we can get something going. We've got some 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 fun plans in the work uh, around some okay. of our, our special games. But uh, I'll get out. We'll keep you, you guys are clever. You guys are really. <laughs> we're, I can't hardly wait to see what you guys conjure up. Entertainment's our middle name. That's that's what we're all about, right? So. But, uh, but again, Coach, can't thank you enough for, for coming on the show. So we'll go ahead and, and button this one up now for my co-host, Chris de Blasio. I'm Brian Rosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games. <laughs> <laughs>